And when Saul is revered, or when Saul is is supposed to be revered, when the author criticizes the men who criticize Saul, it's when he is humble and when he is in that position. But when he begins to hear the command of the Lord and disobey it and refuse to submit, that's when the Lord rejects it. Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, a pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. So, 1 Samuel, you are preaching through the book of first name. I love first Samuel. I've done a couple of, um, some interest workshops on first Samuel fell in love with it. I have just, I've been really encouraged by you and your other guys preaching through first Samuel. I think you guys have preached together really well. Um, you know, helping each other out through the book. Uh, so there's a good flow through the book. Um, and just encouraged in general by the, the sermons themselves. First Samuel is, it's when it comes to stories, it's like, I mean, this is it doesn't get any better than the, than the gospel itself. Uh, the the drama, the characters, the ups, the downs, uh, the scenarios, the the war, the deception, the uh, the whole thing is wonderful. What is First Samuel about? Like, if you were to write some headlines. What's First Samuel about? And then just give us kind of a rundown of uh, First and maybe even Second Samuel if you find that helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think um, ultimately, like I've titled, I typically kind of when I preach through a book, I sort of encapsulate the sense of the book. I try to anyway in sort of a title for the whole series. And I've titled this one Out of the Ashes mm-hmm. because I think... I mean, you could certainly make the argument there's a lot of different things going on in First Samuel, but I think from the kind of the bare bones of it is that God is establishing his kingdom, which I think could be said about every, mm-hmm. about the whole narrative of scripture, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that's essentially what God is doing um, across the pages of scripture. But um, I think Samuel in a unique way is establishing God's kingdom out of the ash heap of uh, of the Mosaic Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant has failed because the hearts of the people are are twisted and corrupt, mm-hmm. and that's told to us in Deuteronomy um, that that's going to happen. And um, I think First Samuel is really showing God establishing His kingdom out of that ash heap that in spite of the human uh, heart and in spite of the uh, pitfalls that uh, 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 or the the uh, wickedness that humanity's engaged in because of the fall it's not going to impede god from establishing his king on his throne and so he's doing that out of the ash heap 
And um, so I, it, it's hard to say, like, I mean, I, I, I wish I could put a sentence on it, you know, and, and a lot of times I think too, that I kind of, I sort of take it chunk by chunk as I preach mm-hmm. and kind of go, okay, this is what is being said here. And it sort of leads me to the conclusion. And then when I get to the end of the book, I look back and I go, yeah, this is what it's about. You know? So, <laughs> so, so sometimes I kind of see that on the back end mm-hmm. and, um, and sometimes I'm like, I think I might, I would have changed that if I, if I had kind of known this ahead of time, I guess. But I think in this case, you know, it seems pretty clear from the very beginning that all of Israel is wandering away from the Lord and they're, they're, they're far gone. The priesthood in Eli's sons, they don't even know the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just doing what they've always been told. It's a job and they're acting in wickedness and all kinds of other things. And there's very few people in the land who respond in faith and who, who are kind of the embers on that ash heap of faith. And God is going to build his kingdom on them. Mm -hmm. He's going to use them to do it. And that's Hannah first, you know, obviously. And, uh, and then Samuel, and then we eventually get to David, you know, but it's going to be on the backs of, of them that he built the, the ones who, who live by faith in in God, who are the ones he's going to build his kingdom on. Mm -hmm. And where are you guys at right now in your, uh, series preaching? I am in, I'm about to preach this Sunday, chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, which is Saul hiding in the baggage. Uh, that's how it's commonly known is Saul hides in the baggage. Yeah. Uh, last, last week, uh, the sermon was called a King is found and my, I was tempted and I started this, this week to title it a King is lost. Um, but the more I read that passage, the more I came to realize that's, that's not what's going on there. Hmm. It's it. Yes. Saul is hiding among the baggage. Um, but I think there, I think there's something else going on that is, um, that is much more profound and much more in keeping with the theme Mm -hmm. of, of Samuel, I think. So I retitled it, but I think that was humorous. (laughs) What what do you find being the most common gospel connection to the book of First Samuel? I have in mind two two ways that you connect to the cross and to Christ. You have the overarching book, so you have references in the New Testament that you know Matthew begins. Jesus is the son of David. We have an Acts that. Uh, G in Peter's sermon that that David is dead. So when the Psalms talk about David reigning forever, we we're clearly talking about his descendant. That has to be Jesus who was raised from the dead. So you have David as a type, a king. You have the the king of the Jews written over Jesus's head when he's crucified. So you you have that Davidic type, and Jesus fulfills that. Do you find so far that? that one kind of gospel application is the main application or is there is there a different way that you get to and through the cross every week yeah it's hard um because you know i think our our desire we both come from the discipline that um that a a, a person who is lost in your congregation needs to understand in your preaching how to follow christ and that should be made mm-hmm. clear 
on in the sermon and um and so you get you end up in this situation sometimes when you preach through a book where the gospel connection is always the same you know and i don't know that i have the mm-hmm. best way of approaching that because you know when we talk about a gospel connection in my mind at least this is the way i think about it is that there are mm-hmm. uh major pillars of the gospel that i think we would all say if you don't if you if you're not communicating this then you're not communicating the gospel and i think s- those pillars are probably going to be the incarnation of god in flesh christ the son um the death the perfect life of christ the death of christ the resurrection of christ and the the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. I think all of those things would be the major pillars that need to be communicated in the gospel message to understand what the basic elements of the gospel is. And but often it's it's I think it's difficult because every um chapter you can especially in samuel you can potentially be looking into the future and going um saying uh david is a type of the one to come saul in some ways is a type of the one to come the king himself is a type of the one to come and and we can always be focusing on on that aspect of it and so that becomes really hard. And I don't know that, um, you know, I necessarily have the best way to do it, but I kind of, I sort of let the text, you know, kind of speak the, where the, where the text speaks the loudest is kind of what I mm-hmm. tend to hone in on. So like, like this week, for example, uh, I think the biggest touch point of the gospel it comes at the end of the passage where, um, you know, Saul has been brought before everybody and has been told, here's the king. Mm-hmm. And um, they finally find him among the baggage and they say, long live the king. Uh, and then there's two people. So Samuel lays out tells the people what the rights and duties of kingship are and he writes them down in a book and he laid them before the lord and i take that to be a reference back to deuteronomy 17 where moses kind of outlines here's what the king is supposed to do in israel i think samuel's probably writing just a prolonged version of that and then we get two people two vignettes of two groups of people in 26 and 27 and i think this is the point of the passage that um, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched 27 but some worthless fellows said how can this man save us and they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace and I think the where I'm where I'm bringing that to Christ is in his ascension which is not something we normally think of in the gospel but the ascension of christ places him at the right hand of the father 
where we're specifically told in the New Testament he is in the process of ruling and reigning and bringing his enemies into submission under his feet. And his enemies are currently right now saying, how can this man save us? And so I think the purpose of this passage is really to say, even in spite of the fact that the Israelites have rejected God, God has chosen this man as king, and you will submit to him, or you will be worthless. And submission to God's king is required. There's no, it's not a question. But the requirement to submit to the king can only be fulfilled by God who touches the heart. So, and that's what you see in the men of valor. What separates the man of valor from the worthless man? The man of valor is the one whose heart God has touched. And what does he do? When God touches his heart, he submits to God's king. But the worthless man remains worthless because his heart isn't touched. It's unstirred. It's unmoved. And what will he do? He will forever do this. So uh, I think that's the, the, when we connect to the gospel, it's for me to say, um, you must submit to God's king. There's, there's no world where you say, how can a loving God, you know, ever judge me for who I am? No, no, no. The question is, are you in submission to Christ as king? Is he the king uh, mm-hmm. of your life? So this is a, I think that's the the bridge into the gospel. So it changes every passage. Every passage, you're going to see certain things come up that are big touch points on what Christ has done and how this is just a shadow of what is to come in Christ ultimately. We've talked about this before, but the the connection of the gospel for us is not be like David, but who is your king? And you're also constantly seeing right. who are Saul's people and who are David's people. Who who comes to David? Who comes to Saul? Who does Saul put around him? Who does David put around him? And the I think the message to the original, you know, the the, the people of Israel during the time of kings, I would assume, are are getting or have this book the freshest, and they're the ones who are wrestling with who's our actual king. Who should be king? And what is God's king in our land? And we ought to be looking for a man like David, uh, to one who feared God and trusted God and obeyed God and would lead us to trust, fear, and obey God ourselves. So that the, the gospel application is like, who's your king? Who's, who's God's king? And how do you follow him? That's really helpful. Yeah. The, the book has more heads cut off. Um, than any other book in the Bible, I think. Um, there's that kind of visual drama, David's, you know, Saul's suicide. Sorry for the spoiler. You've got those kinds of big drama, but it's a big theological book as well for the Old Testament. I mean, it is. It, it, it's rich with what is God like, who is he, and what is he doing? Where do we, where do you see the theology begin and kind of maintain itself through the the book of first Samuel um that's a big question and I'm not sure I'm going to answer it in the way that you intended it I don't I don't know but uh, it seems like um, the message that we get in the New Testament particularly and I, and I 
I'm going to all say, you know, we, I preached through Matthew and it took whatever, three years to get through Matthew. And I will, I will say that book and preaching through that book changed a lot about the way that I think Mm -hmm. about Christianity, about Mm -hmm. uh, my faith, about what God is doing, what his purpose is. I'm not saying changed it from, uh, you know, in in like radical swings of, of, you know, non-Christian to Christian or something like that. But what I mean is just really helped formalize and and sort of, uh, I guess, solidify a lot of thoughts about Mm -hmm. God's kingdom itself and how much of the Bible is speaking to this and, and what our what then the church's responsibility is in light of all of that. And one thing that I see is very common, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, just read back through it and pay attention to how much of that sermon, especially at the very beginning, is emphasizing the kind of people that are included in God's kingdom. And pay attention to the the what type of person it is and contrast that with how kingdoms are built um mm-hmm. normally they're normally built on the backs of the rich the strong and the powerful and that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says in at the very beginning of the sermon that it's built mm-hmm. on the meek it's built on the the ones who mourn basically the crybabies i mean if you want to put a crass term on it um, the poor in spirit instead of the rich. Um, it, it's completely upside down. Well, what I think uh, we see in Samuel is exactly that theme at its beginning. The people want a military. They want a strong man. They want a big, powerful man. And that's why, uh, in part, I think we kind of misread 1 Samuel 11, 17 to 27, where Saul hides among the baggage, and we focus in on that because it's hilarious, first of all. I mean, it is. Let's just own it. It's really funny. But And, and God has to say he's among the baggage. But I think that the purpose of Saul hiding among the baggage is to show that the kind of king that needs to lead Israel is the kind of king who really isn't looking for a kingdom, but the kind of king who is humble, who is meek and mild. And it accentuates in that passage the difference between Israel and God. God is making this man king and he expects you to submit to him. And he knows that he's hiding among the baggage. The people see him hiding among the baggage and they go, yeah, how's this guy going to save us? Right? But God is saying at the beginning of it, he says, uh, thus says the Lord, God, the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you. At the end of the passage, they're going, they're looking at Saul going, how can this man save us? And the answer is, whether he's hiding among the baggage or he's the tallest, most beautiful, handsome man in all of Israel, 
he's not going to save you by his might. He's going to save you by my might. That's it. Mm -hmm. So when he calls David, he again is the weakest, the most insignificant, the youngest, the smallest, can't even put on the armor and uh, mm -hmm. of Saul. And, and he even has to tell, God even has to tell Samuel, I'm not looking at the person. I'm looking at the heart. And, and so, but, but what's great about all that is the whole book is filled with God doing this, Israel doing the opposite and God doing, God looking at the heart and building it on humility. And what we, what, what you, if you go back to Hannah's prayer in chapter two, she says in her prayer, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So she sets the theology of Samuel from the beginning and that is, the Lord is the one who does this. He establishes his kingdom. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He builds his kingdom on the back of the humble, the people who know they are in need of him. And I think when you, when you connect that to the New Testament, what you find is that Mary's prayer in Luke is very, very similar to Hannah's prayer in Samuel chapter two, she, Mary comes, Mary prays the, the Magnificat whenever she finds out she's with child, she's going to have Jesus. She says, um, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, which is basically exactly how Hannah starts her prayer. She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold now from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne. He, she's going right through what Hannah did and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is, what's different about Mary's Magnificat from Hannah's prayer in uh, 1 Samuel 2 is that Mary is seeing that all of the things Hannah is looking forward to Mary is saying he has now done in Christ that Jesus is the is the is the fulfillment the fruition of mm -hmm. all that God has promised is now coming to pass in Jesus building his kingdom on the backs of the humble and not on the rich the people who know they need God who fear God who love God who want to worship God and not on those who are proud and and haughty and and arrogant and so that theme in 1 Samuel and really 2 Samuel, I guess, that, that kind of hammers home the idea of God raising his kingdom 
on the ash heap of the Mosaic Covenant and building it on the backs and the, the embers, if you will, of the of those who who love the Lord and who are humble mm-hmm. is continued throughout. And when you get to Jesus in Matthew five, he's basically saying, Yes, this is what the kingdom of God is. It is a mm-hmm. it is a a people who are who are yes called, yes enabled by the Holy Spirit but who deep down hunger and thirst for righteousness, mm-hmm. you know? And so yeah. I, that's a really long answer. And I'm not even sure if that's a yes, because it's, question. It's pointing, it, it's showing that the whole of first and second Samuel has the theological introduction from Hannah that the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them, he has set the world. Yeah. He is the one who is, bringing up from low and taking down from high and that and that begins first like you pointed out it begins first in this uh, woman who gets called worthless which is an important word this worthless person yeah. of worthless yeah. sons later uh, uh, the priest Eli thinks that she is a worthless woman and yet she is the one that God is actually giving a child to in marriage and yeah. is going to give birth to Samuel, the one who brings the word to the the people of God. And so you, you have this yeah. idea running through the whole book that God is the one raising up and tearing down. God is the one who provides the king. God is the one who wins wars, not you. Um yeah, it. it I, I'm just wondering how yeah. th- that application has to be showing up throughout First Samuel, so that there should be a way, and that the as you read First Samuel, we ought to feel there's some redundancy that all through the narrative. Oh, here God is again raising up from the ashes. Here God is again raising up the ones who looked worthless and helpless and. Uh, you know, weak, and he's actually giving them victory. He's actually giving them prominence. He's actually putting them in office. And then those who were proud and arrogant and sure of themselves, God's tearing down. That just seems to be happening over and over and over through the whole book. And I, for for yeah. us, the application has to be um, humility, if nothing else, before God just recognizing there really isn't anything about us that has impressed God. And if we think so, we're closer to being in Saul's position than David's, if we're going to pick one of the the two men that we're, you know, we're like. Um, And so in terms of, you know, both what we're like and what kind of king we're looking for, um, it, it is hum- humiliating to to read the theology that we shouldn't talk proudly, like Hannah says. Um, the bows of the mighty are broken, feeble bind on strength. Every, everything is upside down in the kingdom. And it very, you talked about Matthew because it is very much Matthew. Everything's upside down in Matthew, right? Everything that is of value on mm-hmm. the earth in men's eyes is actually very low in, in God's eyes. And, you know, we, we tend to think that hunger and weakness, frailness, uh, you know, 
just not having any strength, not knowing everything, that that puts us in a, a, a some troubled place. And it's like th- this is actually the ones whom God chooses to save. Going back to Israel itself, I, I did not choose you because you were beautiful or because you were many or because you were strong, but because I set my love mm-hmm. on you in, in covenant, period. It, it's because of me that you are Israel to begin with. So just the, the humility of that God's the one doing this. He's choosing. He's saving. He's redeeming. He's sanctifying. He's doing the rescuing and the bringing you home to the promised land, and he's the one who gives you a, a king that you would, you would never look for. I think that's another thing we, we think about in Jesus is no one would ever look for Jesus. When the disciples get Jesus, and you know, in terms of they, you know, they're with him, they're confused. This is not what we expected. You know, we're reading and uh, we're going through John in our building block, and Jesus fed 5,000 people. And uh, and ironically, you know, the next chapter they want to know, uh, Moses gave us a bunch of food. He gave us manna. What's your sign? Well, I, you, you missed it. It was over there on the other side of the lake, actually. <laughs> but in that chapter, they want to, they want to make him king immediately. And Jesus perceived that and and left before they could kind of you know have an impromptu inauguration right there. But it's because they didn't they don't they didn't understand what kind of king was actually coming, and could actually that God was actually going to give His strength to as a king. I think it's humbling because I, whether it's the president of the United States, whether it's the people who are to be in positions of leadership in our church, whether it's the way I think about myself and what I'm supposed to be. It can be really convicting to think, what am I, what am I looking for out there, and mm-hmm. what is God looking for in in a leader, in uh, as a ministry, as a staff, in in your own heart, what what should I be pursuing, and if I find myself broken, low, weak, without strength, and troubled and desperate for the Lord, uh, is God looking at me going? Well, gosh, I was really going to use Nathan, but pff, I mean, he is so weak. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that God's perspective on us, or is God looking for those people? And is that whom God chooses to use? It seems like First Samuel is saying this is actually the, whom God chooses to use because this is how he glorifies himself as the one who raises up and, and brings down. Yeah. And, and one way to look at Saul, like we, Saul's an easy guy to pick on, right? Yeah. Because of how the story ends. Yeah, because he's wimpy and he's paranoid and he's, yeah, he's crazy. And he's he's crazy. He, um, he, he could get diagnosed with some serious stuff in the diagnostic statistic manual. Yeah. Based on how he acts. Yeah. Yeah. And what what is clear is in I believe it's first name of sixteen or right there around sixteen where it says the spirit rushed upon David and stayed with him forever and then the spirit left Saul and he was given a spirit of madness. Yeah. Basically to yep. replace it. Um so you know, it's easy to pick on Saul. He's rejected by God and you know, there's uh, he kills himself and there's He's disobedient at every turn, it seems like. Okay, so it's very easy. But I think what happens is we let the later part of the book inform how we see Saul at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
And Saul is, yes, there are a lot of things where you're like, okay, Saul, there's some irony baked into the passage, right? Mm-hmm. Saul can't even find his donkeys, you know, and that kind of thing where David is keeping his sheep. So there's some like That's a parallels. He can't even find his own donkeys, yep. Yeah, he can't find his own donkeys. And, and the, the parallels between are being drawn between David and, and Samuel, it seems like. Right. And so it'd be easy to take all of that and pick on him that he's hiding among the baggage. But I think to Saul's credit, when you could also read him hiding among the baggage, you could read it one as passive and fearful, which I think he probably is, but you can also read it as humble, not humble in the sense of like, uh, you know, Oh, I'm just a humble guy or, or whatever, but but humble in the sense of, I, I didn't ask for this. I, I don't really even know what to do to lead a, a kingdom. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have anything. Saul is the tallest, the most handsome, and he's rich. Mm-hmm. His dad is super wealthy. Saul, and he's in the tribe of Benjamin, which is not a wealthy tribe because they've just been decimated by the 11 other tribes. <laughs> So how his dad maintained wealth in there, he's probably one of the only ones in the whole tribe that's wealthy, and Saul's going to inherit all of that. So Saul is rich, he's good-looking, and he's tall. Mm -hmm. And I would say he's probably strong, too. All right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and he is hiding among the baggage, one, kind of fearful, two, also probably saying, like he does to Samuel when he's anointed, I, are you sure you're talking to the right person? Mm-hmm. Are you sure I'm the right guy? And when Saul is revered, or when Saul is is supposed to be revered, when the author criticizes the men who criticize Saul, it's when he is humble and when he is in that position. But when he begins to hear the command of the Lord and disobey it, and refuse to submit, that's when the Lord rejects him. <laughs> that's when that's when um, service to David becomes David's anointing and where David transitioned in. And 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 I think it's it's illustrating that same theme that you, human, are to be humbled by your inclusion in the kingdom and remain humbled by your inclusion in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. You're not the greatest. You never have been. And honestly, you don't even really want to be. Man, the church should just be really glad that I'm here. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the pastor should just be really thankful I haven't gone to another church yet. Uh, Yeah. The the church is just lucky to have me serving in children's ministry. Um, Or or in pulpit ministry. It's a good thing the church has me as their pastor. They don't know what they would be. They don't know what they would do if they didn't. They didn't have me. Versus, um, no, 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 no. You you needed to be saved into the church. You needed to be saved into God's people. You needed to be rescued and found and lifted up from the sinful place of death that you were in. You're welcome. God is saying. Uh, I, yeah. It's you know kind of like Maui here. You know you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> tells you how many times I've I've seen that movie. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you, and, and you, I you see I, a picture in the 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 first Samuel and second Samuel narrative. It's not a 
it's not necessarily mainly aiming at a chronological narrative. Right. That's not how it's structured. Yeah. It tells you about David, tells you about Saul, and there is an intentional uh, comparison and contrast between the two characters over and over. And it's right. it's like we're so dumb. We've got to have two books that show yeah. us the differences between these characters. You can't you you couldn't just give a little two paragraph bio, you know, biography of David and Saul. We we have to see it over and over. And one of the things that the places it comes that's been most touching to me over the years is first Samuel twenty two, when David is already Saul's already tried to kill David and David fled from him to the cave of Adullam. I know this is farther down the road where your people yeah. are. But there are gathered to David in the cave people who are bitter in soul, uh, who are in distress, who are in debt. And they all come together and they go with David and they hide in the cave together. Well, in the next section when it talks about Saul, Saul is uh, under the Tamarisk tree up on the hill he's got a spear in his hands and all of his servants are around him ready to defend ready to attack and so you have these two pictures of Saul and the people around him and David and the weak people around him and in this chapter Saul goes so far as to kill all of the priests in uh, in the city of Nob and just massacres them mercilessly but when David um, comes to find even an Edomite even an Edomite he tells them you can stay safe with me don't be afraid he who seeks my life seeks yours but with me you shall be in safekeeping and that's the that's the gospel that we need to hear not man a lot of people should be really thankful that we're here but thank God we have found a place for safekeeping we we yeah. found a king, and a kingdom, where where us broken and weak in our sin, can be kept safe. We have a, we have a place to go. We have a king to go to, um, which is very different than, you know, we talked about David before. You're not David. It's very different than you have to be a certain. You're supposed to be David. You're supposed yeah. to be strong. You're you're supposed to be all these things, and we are we are called to holiness. Yeah, uh, but, or but worse, in terms of or worse, acceptance we're, we're we're saved in. You know, even worse. You read the passage in Saul where he's hiding among the baggage, and the message comes back: "Don't be like Saul." Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry. I think the point is be like Saul. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that you're fearful, right. but that you are humbled yeah. by your inclusion in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So humbled, even that you're wondering how is it that you've saved me. Remember Jesus, I'm always blown away by this passage, but um, in Luke 18, starting in verse nine, Jesus tells his parable and he, it says, it's, it's interesting the way Luke frames the parable. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. Mm -hmm. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, um, the, the message coming from 1 Samuel is not different than the message coming from Jesus. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's not different than the message coming from the rest of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And, and it really raises, you know, our, our, the question, I think, if Jesus is king, what do you submit to? So if Jesus really is your king and you know that I have resurrection, I have eternal life, he, uh, he directs everything that I do and say he is uh, what he calls unjust and unholy, I call unjust and unholy. What he calls holy and righteous, I call holy and righteous. That, that I'm following everywhere he leads. Then when it comes to my life of humility, what does it actually look like? Mm-hmm. What does it look like um, in your submission to authority, to human authority? Well, the New Testament takes the implications of our humility in becoming Christians and applies it to our submission to one another in the church, mm-hmm. our submission to pastoral authority, our submission to kingly authority. Paul has the gall in Romans 13, which if you just read it, will, I mean, drive you mad and i've never read this in in a public setting where there wasn't a whole bunch of qualifications that people wanted to add to it mm-hmm. but he says let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those that exist have been instituted by god therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment mm-hmm. i mean that's about as strong a statement as you can make but why does Paul get there? Mm-hmm. What led what led Paul there? And the answer is all of the implications of the gospel. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to humble yourself under the kingship of Christ? Mm-hmm. And what it means is you can submit to everybody because there is no authority but Christ. Yeah. Doesn't matter. They can't do anything to me. They can kill me but they can't kill the soul. Yeah. My soul belongs to Christ. My body actually belongs to Christ. They, mm-hmm. they, can, they can punish me, but they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all belongs to Christ. So it's interesting that, that I think that our humility and our submission to Christ as king, which is this theme coming from 1 Samuel and really going through the entire Bible, our submission to Christ as king actually touches on our submission to everything else mm-hmm. and everyone else. And our ability to actually turn to our brother and sister in, in the church and submit to their correction, submit to their encouragement, turn to the pastor, submit to his teaching, his leadership, turn to my boss and submit to my boss, even though he doesn't do this job. He's, he doesn't know what we go through, 
right? Like, so when you see, you're, or maybe you do it, or maybe maybe any one of us could do it, and probably all of us have at one point, I know I have, people at work subverting authority, it's really a refusal to submit to Christ as King. And we don't, we don't think about it that way. It's a refusal to be humble. Mm-hmm. And the, the hard thing for people to see there is that's exactly the ones that are included in the kingdom mm-hmm. are the ones who are humble, who do understand submission, who, whose hearts the Lord has touched, mm-hmm. who understand their, their, their role and their place who submit themselves to Christ and, and go, everything else around me is also under Christ's authority. So nothing comes to me that he hasn't directed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so it's actually, it's actually this really, I think, profound and deep tie-in to the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and it, it takes me back to Hannah's prayer and makes me ask the question, do I know that? Yes. Do I love that? Do I yeah. submit my heart to God, whatever you do with the weak and with the strong? I, I am I, I am recognizing that you are sovereign and, and work in ways beyond my wisdom. And then I'm just... That humility sets you up for all of this scenarios you just described mm-hmm. you know uh where you to to go from you know, acknowledging it and just recognizing that's where you can rest that's where you can you know give up without giving up and quitting life and, and yeah. quitting christianity and quitting your church you can actually stay in god's commands and instruction just resting that what what do you have to do but to trust him and obey what he's given you to do and, yeah. and leave it to him yeah it's such a wonderful freedom i don't know yeah. i don't know i mean I, I guess i do know what how ways i've tried in my own flesh to think that i control to think uh, you know to value things in the world in you know saw like ways and how frustrating it is, and how mm-hmm. hopeless, and how debilitating, and how um, exhausting it is. Um, but then find I can actually have, I can actually obey the same commands that God has given me to lay down my life for my wife, to speak the truth in love to the church, to uh, come alongside a brother and help carry his burdens, and do that with, and then there'd be no burden on me. Yeah. And there just be it just be light as a feather. Why? Because it's God. God's the yeah. one who's raising up and tearing down. I'm I'm the weak one. If God doesn't give me strength, I don't. I don't, I don't just don't. I don't. I don't go. I don't. I don't go tomorrow. I I don't. I don't do it again. I can't. I don't know how people do it. Um, yeah. It's it's the life of the Lord that helps us do anything for His will and yeah. for His name. So that's a great joy. Any last words on First Samuel, things that we should uh, take with us? Or if we're going to pop open and read it, things you might give for us to, to think about before we dive in? I mean, I, I think just to kind of double down on things that we've said is that our eyes should really be open 
um, to all of the times when God exalts the humble mm-hmm. and and brings low the proud. And uh, I, I think you're going to see that play out in Saul, mm-hmm. in David, both in good and bad ways. Mm-hmm. David beginning in good ways and then in sec- into Second Samuel in bad ways, mm-hmm. you know, brought down low. And you've got, so you, you'll see all of this up and down from all these people. Right. They'll rise and fall based on a lot of things. But in the end, the very end of Second Samuel, what happens? They buy, David buys the spot where the temple is going to be situated. Mm-hmm. So in the end, did the rising or the falling of any one man determine whether or not God's temple was built? No, mm-hmm. it didn't. It's the same as similar as to what you see in the book of Numbers where you get the count at the beginning, you get disobedience, wandering in the desert, killing off an entire generation, and the number at the end is barely different <laughs> of the people walking into the promised land. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, did the disobedience and all of this of these people, did it affect God's ultimate outcome mm-hmm. for what he ended up producing? He said he was going to build his kingdom, mm-hmm. and he continues to build his kingdom. Mm-hmm. So the best we can do, the best thing that we can do is submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God, which also means submitting ourselves to people in authority over us because we know God is king, Christ is king, and I'm serving him. Mm. I'm not serving them. I'm serving him. And so I'm going to serve him to the best of my ability by serving the others around me. It's people in my church and things like that. So I think keep, keep that in the front in the forefront as you read and i think the the implications on our lives are going to be abundant throughout the book amen look forward to hearing more preaching man see you next week For listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.